This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Sunday in Melbourne town, coming to you from the delightful Brunswick East, the Paris end of Nicholson Street. It's radiotherapy time. It's Panel Beater with you this morning. Um, great to be with you. First of all, a uh, big thanks and congratulations to Radio Marinara. A thousand shows of talking all things wet and salty. Um, pretty good stuff. And it was great to hear the old voices from uh, years past on... Um, we've got another cracker show, um, and we'll be here with you until the scientists come in at 11. I'm very pleased to be sitting opposite my colleague, Dr. Sharma. Good morning, Dr. Sharma. Good morning. It's good to be here. Missed you last month when we were talking all things musculoskeletal. I know, I missed that. I was very, very busy. It's, uh, yeah, what can I say? Are you able to tell us what was keeping you away? Yes, yes, I can. You can probably notice a reluctance in my voice. I, it, these uh, parts of my life I generally keep pretty separate. <laughs> so uh, I was doing some shows at the Melbourne Magic Festival. Yep. And uh, so I, it was a run of shows over about a week. And it kept me extremely, extremely, extremely busy. Uh, but all the hard work paid off. The shows went really well. Did um, did the festival go well? Uh, it went amazingly, yeah. So uh, it's one of the trends with this kind of emerging festival we've got of the Melbourne Magic Festival is the standard just keeps going through the roof. Yeah. And so this year we attracted an absolute superstar of magic, uh, a man by the name of Lu Chen, who's a household name back in uh, in his native China. 
and uh, and it was actually just scary to look at the standard of, of magic, both Australian and abroad, that uh, Melbourne's attracting. It's a bit of a hot spot for magic in the world, Melbourne. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. What's um, Mr Chen's shtick? Does he cut people in half, <laughs> pull rabbits out of his hat? He does not. He is about as modern and cutting edge as a magician as you can get, actually. Um, it's, it's really fantastic to see the really bold, creative directions he's kind of going in. And uh, it's one of the great things about getting people from overseas to, to, to kind of come sit at the festival is it just inspires more and more creativity yeah. from everyone else. Yeah. Uh, so it was fantastic to see, actually. Yeah. We should do a show one day on the psychology of magic. <gasps> Absolutely. Would yeah. you reveal your secrets? No. <laughs> no. Um, there is a surprising amount of overlap, I think, in terms of the philosophies of magic and just uh, how I find day-to-day general practice, yeah. healthcare, conversations with people, work, well, about I, persuasion, truth, mm, lies, everything. You know, yeah. my, my, my five-year-old, ten-year-old self uh, comes out um, whenever I watch it, like so in other words, what I'm saying is I suspend my enthusiasm for empiricism and science, <laughs> and I just let myself be entertained, but with the wow factor, like mystified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you reckon's behind that? What's your pet theory uh, behind, uh, behind behind people's attraction to uh, as the audience's attraction to? Uh, I think magic? it's that make believe is fun. Yeah. Um, there's uh, it's kind of ingrained into our storytelling culture and everything so we all have just this great fascination with it so even when you know it's not true it's nice to buy into it uh, for a short amount of time and uh, and you know, we're constantly surrounded by things that are really genuinely wonderful in terms of technology and everything we've kind of achieved and we sometimes lose touch of how wonderful those things really are and it's one of the great things that magic does is it kind of reminds us how amazing our world really is yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's have a think about doing the show. Yeah, we shall. Um, look, we've got a, a brilliant show coming up. We're going to be talking um, all things medical education and training in Australia, and we're drawing on the uh, contemporaneous experience of a couple of the radiotherapy team. One of whom is very familiar to uh, radiotherapy listeners. We'll have uh, training wheels in shortly. And we've got a newbie in town, and we're looking forward to introducing him and revealing his on-air nom de plume. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get to that, let's uh, sort ourselves out with a bit of medical news. What's caught your eyes, news-wise, Dr Sharma? Well, this week the University of Technology in Sydney announced that they're going to stop offering their degree in traditional Chinese medicine after more than 25 years. And this has been pretty much the longest-running course in Australia uh, offering this degree, and it's uh, made a lot of people very upset, as you can kind of imagine. It's made current students quite upset. Um, Also, it tends to have quite a good reputation in those circles for being a good course. It... um, uh, offers a lot of kind of mandatory kind of practical experience that students kind of need to have, and uh, but the the, uni- the reason the university game was that uh, the course is no longer financially viable, did not produce enough research, and did not fit with the quote unquote strategic direction 
of the science faculty, which I think is uh, is a lovely little kind of euphemism there, um, mm. because as you can kind of imagine, the the scientific community is constantly kind of at odds with um, with traditional Chinese medicine and most other things that fit within the ambit of complementary alternative uh, medicine, and I think it's probably just not a good look for a university um, to be offering courses uh, in, in in these kind of health practices that are you know either are unproven or disproven and don't really show a strong intention to have things tested by you know, by the scientific method. I guess a mainstream university in particular, it's probably more difficult for them to justify having a course like this that doesn't, I suppose, prescribe to the more rigorous scientific method that we expect. And that voice you're hearing is, of course, training wheels. Good morning, sir. You couldn't... <laughs> just couldn't sit on her hands for a... <laughs> And neither should she. <laughs> this topic should evoke passions. <laughs> <laughs> so we go on, Trini. Sorry to interrupt you, go. No, that's all. That's all I had to say. Yeah? Yep. Fair enough. Yeah. But yeah, I, oh, sorry. Yeah, I guess there are other sort of smaller, more alternative kind of tertiary education institutions that have these sorts of courses, and I guess they're going to continue. But UTS is a mainstream big yeah, exactly. And I presume, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not confident of this, but I uh, presume this is uh, like an undergraduate, this is kind of like a HEX type help funded mm. kind of course, which I think is, again, a major thing. You know, if you want to do it on your own dime, that's kind of fine. But if the taxpayer is paying for it and if we are not confident that there is benefit, so to speak, well, then it just makes things more contentious and, you know, I could see why things went down the way they did. It stands to reason that a university wouldn't be enthusiastic about keeping programs that aren't supported by research, you know, research activity. Was the claim in this case reasonable as far as you know? Well, this is where there's a bit of debate because people from within the course, um, you know, for example, some of the articles I've seen, I think they're, they're quoting students, but you know, people are saying, well, no, the research is underway and uh, the, the course is kind of making money, etc. And so... I think here we kind of come to the crux of it where when the, the university stated that oh, the reason we're discontinuing this is the strategic direction, quote-unquote, where I actually think it's possible that it's got nothing to do with the finances, really, um, that it's got to do with a more kind of philosophical objection. Now, funnily enough, this is exactly what the people in, in the course are saying. Well, this is why you're doing it. It's exactly the reason the university is kind of denying They're saying, no, 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 it has everything to do with money. Um, whereas uh, I, I think that the, the truth is it's probably got more to do with that. Yeah, and it occurs to me um, there's been some to and fro debates around uh, the Centre uh, for... Um, oh, the name's going to escape me. The Confucius Centres around um, various Australian universities. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yes. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying the two are linked at all, but... Um, and then we've got the... the, the um, um, the Centre for Western uh, Studies of Western Civilization yes. mm. opening up in uh, Wollongong. Mm. There's a whole lot going on in universities at the moment that the culture wars, mm. yeah, exactly. And what you're alluding to there, yeah. you know, the kind of Confucius centres, this is part of the whole debate and uncertainty. Is it this kind of soft dis- diplomacy uh, that's kind yep. of uh, encroaching uh, in kind of our universities and uh, and you know. Are they really the place for these things? Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to comes to things like healthcare, I think that's where I tend to kind of draw a line. It's like, well, is it benefiting people? Is it not? Let's just do that thing. I don't really kind of care where it comes from or doesn't come from. Let's return to a bit of that when we speak to our guests a little bit yeah, uh, we later. Can. Hey, the news item that I'll quickly just uh, touch on, um, you know I'm a big fan of uh, keeping an eye on 
big farmer. Please do. Yeah. Keep both eyes on him. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the story uh, that caught my eye uh, this week was uh, out of the US, where obviously um, a, a significant amount of big pharma resides. In this case, it's a major asthma drug maker has been quietly investing in coal. <laughs> this is great. Um, so, and this is the same pharmaceutical company that just months ago was embroiled in price gouging scandal. Mm, I think I mentioned um, um, previously um, it, 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 that that scandal was related to its um, uh, EpiPen development. Um, anyway, uh, it, the, there are so many layers to the oh issues involved in this story. This is, you know. this is a conspiracy <laughs> dream. A disaster. You know. And uh, if they brought it up, I'd go, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not predisposed to conspiracies, but if you wanted to, you could just really go to town on this. Um, I won't, I won't labour the point, but the one other aspect that just makes it even more sketchier is that the um, uh, chief executive... Um, of Milan, which is the, the big farmer, um, is the daughter of a US senator of West Virginia, which, would you believe it, happens to be the second largest coal producing state in the no! country. <laughs> classic. It's this classic crony wow, capital. That is juicy. Oh, um, anyway, anyway. Got to keep an eye on those. Got to keep an eye on that. Hey, um, we'll wrap that. I'll wrap up the news there because I'm really keen to get talking um, with our guest, with Training Wheels and our soon-to-be-introduced newest radiotherapy team member. Um, let's take a little bit of music and uh, we'll be back uh, to talk all things med training. You're on Radiotherapy. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Triple R Radio Therapy, it's me, Panel Beater, with uh, Dr. Sharma, and we're now joined by our special guest slash radiotherapy colleagues and team, Training Wheels and uh, soon-to-be-introduced newbie. Let's start with you, Training Wheels. Good morning. Good morning again. We're sorry we couldn't... Uh, uh, sorry, uh, didn't get you on air before to talk oh, about Chinese medicine. Don't worry, I just jumped in anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was seeing you as a guest this morning. Mm. Yeah, hence my my oversight. Um, how are you? Very good. How are you? I'm really well. Two weeks in a row you're in. I oh, know, lucky me. Lucky you. Mm. We're going to be talking to you all about your med training in a minute. Sounds good. Looking forward to it? Yeah. And our newbie. Good morning. Good morning. There's the voice. And who are you? Uh, I'm Neonatal. Neonatal. Introducing Neonatal to the radiotherapy team. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Hey, um, so we're going to spend uh, the show talking about med training in, uh, in Australia. And um, I think the way we might kick off is just to get to know a little bit about how you guys found yourself amongst it. Um, I'm sure you've got some things in common, but I bet you there's a whole lot that's uh, not necessarily the same for all sorts of reasons. Training wheels, How did uh, what pressed your buttons to take the plunge and go down the medical path? Mm, well, I, looking back, I can't really pinpoint a particular time where it first entered my mind. I remember it sort of being in the back of my mind in high school 
but I knew to get into undergrad I had to do chemistry and I hated chemistry at school. I did it in year 11 and I just couldn't stomach the thought of doing it in year 12. So I thought, oh, well, that's it. I suppose I won't do medicine. Can't do chemistry. Um, so then I did undergrad and I kept it as broad as possible because I really had no idea what I wanted to do. So I did a double degree of arts and science um, and I majored in pathology in my science degree and really was fascinated by the disease processes and all that sort of stuff but couldn't see myself working in a lab or um, doing research full-time. But I think the major catalyst for me when I was um, in undergrad, my dad got sick with brain cancer and he died a couple of years later. And I think that experience was really mm. my first kind of proper uh, experience with the healthcare system more you know beyond getting a pap smear or whatever and I think I I remember having a couple of moments with his treatment and experience thinking what an amazing privilege it is to be a doctor to be invited into people's most vulnerable mm. moments wow. in their lives and to do what you can to make it better and to have hard conversations that no one else wants to have. Mm -hmm. Being honest with people when that's the last thing anyone wants to do is tell the truth when the truth is really awful. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought that takes so much courage and authenticity and I thought I'd love to do that job. Yeah, yeah. Um, and did you... But you're not on a track to be a neurosurgeon, are you? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for you, it was the sense of medical care that, rather than necessarily that particular expertise. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was more the patient interaction in general. I thought was special to me. Yeah. 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 Um, and what what is your track? What track are you on? Well, so I'm still a medical student. I'm a third-year medical student. I'm doing my psychiatry rotation at the moment, which I'm very much enjoying. So you radiotherapy might have another psychiatrist just to add to the over-representation on the <laughs> team of panellists. Great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but I haven't done GP yet, and I've really enjoyed the few days I have done with GPs in the past, so I might love that. Uh, I really don't know. Yeah, it's hard. This is the standard medical student thing, and I understand exactly what this is like. You do one thing, you're like, I'm going to do this. Mm. Next week you do something else, I want to do this. Oh, yeah. I've I loved do this. everything except anesthetics. Anesthetics made me want to die, I'm, and everything I'm, else I've Loved. I'm I'm the same. I tried so hard to like anesthetics. Oh. It's just the one thing I couldn't. It's a funny thing when you discover the things you you like, but also things you don't like in a way you just could not have predicted before you try it. Yeah, so right. Yeah. Neonatal. You have got doctors in the family. What was your trigger? No, I haven't got doctors in the family. I um surprisingly have a very similar story. Mm. I was uh, sick as a kid, uh, and. A lot of my role models as a child were doctors. Mm. You know, you're around doctors all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that kind of put me on the path. I think mum and dad have got a, a little drawing of that I did when I was four or five saying I want to be a hospital worker. <laughs> wow. Uh, you should have brought that along to your medical school oh, interview. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Proof. <laughs> Proof that everything I'm saying isn't a lie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that kind of put me on the path of wanting to do medicine. Um, in retrospect, it would have been nicer if I'd chosen an easier career path at that age. <laughs> uh, but I ended up doing a general science bachelor uh -huh. and wasn't turned off by the idea of going through all the rigorous uh, yeah. application process for medicine. Yeah. And, yeah, and now I'm currently in my third year. Yeah. Um, same as training mills. I am... Um, 
are actually doing my GP rotation at the moment. Right. And, yeah, that's been great. Right. Um, what occurs to me is, and maybe I'm projecting here, I seem to ha- have bumped into conversations where it's almost the opposite experience of people where they get exposed for some reason, maybe um, a family member's illness, um, and it turns them away from the idea mm. of working in medicine. Mm. Um, would you, from just casual conversations from your colleagues in your programs, how common is the story you've got that somebody's had a pivotal experience in? Not all that common as far as I've come across. No, I think we're a uh, mm. poor representation of the yeah. actual cohort. There's a huge number of medical students, I think, that have um, doctors in the family. Yeah, that, right. yeah. That's my impression. I get heaps and heaps and heaps um, have doctors in the family. Mm. And I don't know if it's just a lack of imagination yeah. or <laughs> the early exposure to you know an inspiring career that gets people going. But that does seem to be a pattern that I come across a lot. Yeah, the I remember my high school years. It was the the smart kids in science they were going to do medicine, and the smart kids in non science they were going to do law. Mm-hmm. It just seemed mm-hmm. that just seemed like to stereotype people overwhelmingly. But that was yeah. that was the way it was. Still a trend that continues. For yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah. Well, AI, artificial intelligence in the future is probably going to have a big say on the lucrativity of uh, of both professions, isn't it? For Especially sure. law, probably losing a bit there. Yeah, absolutely, and, and medicine, no, no doubt as well. I mean, the the whole issue right now is kind of the timeline and how soon or how late that's going to happen. I think it is still going to take a while, but yep. when we do reach that threshold, it's going to change the the way that certain specialties certainly conduct themselves. We, we always talk about radiology, mm. the interpretation of, of X-rays and yeah. CT scans and MRIs, and how. Um, I mean, there will always be a role for for people. But, I think particularly um, in your specialty, Dr Sharma, I think general, you've chosen yes. well. Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> general practice, just the art of conversation, which is what that specialty really is. Let's or psychiatry. Un- let's unpack some career options um, a little bit later, but I, just before we move on from your personal experience, so you had this mind's eye view of what moving into medicine would be. How much has that been confirmed or challenged since you've done it? I think having a personal experience with doctors and hospitals uh, gave me a somewhat realistic view of what medicine is like, but I don't think you can really understand what it'll be like until you, you get immersed in it. Hmm. Uh, the, you can get a very general overview of the hours and the experiences that you'll be doing, but then you'll always reach a point where you're in a very personal situation with a family or with a patient and... Uh, you're watching someone else or you're uh, you're talking to them and it's a very intimate moment that you're not really able to understand until you reach that point. And I think everyone who's done it can probably remember the first time that they really had that intimate moment mm. and that experience. And I think that's something that we'll never really be able to uh, explain to people. Yeah, sure. Similar for you, Training Wheel? And I think it's really important to remember that sort of like the core of why we want to be doctors because there's so mm. much they call, talk about the invisible, the hidden curriculum. Mm. There's so much of the culture of medicine that's really awful that, you you know, you go into medical school as a bright-eyed, naive, you know, positive-thinking, <laughs> blah, blah, blah person and then you do your first surgical ward round and 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> you see that everybody's awful. Um, <laughs> and yeah. It's, yeah, it's very easy to get jaded and think that, oh, the system's broken well, and yeah, right. everything's awful and there's no point and everything's hard and there's bureaucracy and blah, blah, blah. Um, but there are still these moments that remind you why you're really there and they are there and you've, I think you've got to keep an eye out for them. So three years in, have you both experienced births and deaths? Yep, yep. I... Uh, was actually just on my women's rotation, so lots of births on that one. Uh, And I have experienced a few deaths. Uh, They were very different to what you originally think that they'll be like. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite a hard hard experience to, to really not discuss, but... uh, more present in, in an audio format, uh, but <laughs> yeah. but it's much uh, much messier than you really think. Yeah, you know, it all kind of just happens, and and that's it. Yeah. Doctor Sharma, do you remember your first exposure to those? Absolutely, yeah. I think my my first exposure was having to kind of pronounce a patient dead um, uh, who I'd I'd never seen before, uh, and it's uh, going along with what neonatals just said in terms of how messy it can be. Um, I mean. If you can imagine, just as a, I, I was a junior doctor, uh, very, very junior, maybe like a month or so into the job. Oof. And I mean, I was, how old was I? Wasn't I like 22 or something? Jesus. You just asked her, going, yeah. hey, you know, like, is pronounce this person dead? And you're like, ah, uh, okay. And mm. you, you've got all the things, all, all the medical knowledge in your head about all the things you're supposed to check and respiratory rate and heart rate and pupils and this and that and whatever. Um, yet, the room is might be completely silent, but inside he's just constant, just yeah. this kind of chaos. You you're feeling just this avalanche of emotions, oh. and this is one of the things that that about medical training is that you know the, the book learning is one thing, but actually doing it the the interior dimension uh, of 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 learning that kind of happens there it's incredibly incredibly challenging, mm. and I think we forget as doctors sometimes, but you actually kind of think back to what it was like as a student. It's like oh my goodness, this stuff is hard. Really, really hard. Um, that uh, occurs to me. That triggers me to think of an, another conversation that a lot of us non-med people um, presume about med training, and let alone the med life, is that there's lots of blood involved. Mm. Were you able to handle blood um, as much as you would necessarily have needed to training? Yeah, us? I've been fine actually. And in the past, I've had quite a um, weak stomach in terms of vomiting. Like yeah. if I watched people vomit, that would really yeah. I'd not cope very well. But I've actually found myself to be more stoic. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> In fact, on uh, on track with that, um, a fairly confronting experience for me was uh, was cadavers for anatomy dissections, etc. Mm. Now, I want to ask you guys, like, how did you find that? Is that something your university still does? Yeah. Yeah. In first year, we spend a lot of time dissecting cadavers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was exposed to it in undergrad because I was doing an anatomy course, um, and I was nineteen, being exposed to these. You know, dismembered limbs and dismembered torsos and <laughs> it wasn't as weird as as you think the the overwhelming feeling that you get is probably hunger from the formaldehyde ah um <laughs> wow yeah now that's not that's heard before that, yeah, is that a recognized thing yeah oh, so wow. formaldehyde will uh trigger hunger in a certain group of people and that was unfortunately me good god hunger yeah. for just general hunger. <laughs> I've also heard, cupcakes, cupcakes, cupcakes. I've heard that it specifically makes you crave meat. Yeah. I'm vegetarian and that's not been my experience, but apparently that's what happens. How about that? How do they brief you before you do get exposed for the first time to A, a dead body and, and B, a uh, cadaver? 
I remember being taught a lot about the importance of treating the body with respect um, and the Melbourne Uni where we both go, I think they do a good job of... Um, so the the families of the um, the bodies that are used in the dissections are acknowledged at an annual thank you dinner, and there's a there's a lot of engagement with the families, and right. um, I guess personalising the, the the bodies themselves are de-identified at the time of dissection, so you don't know exactly who you're dealing with. But there's a, a a lot of effort to you know treat them with respect and remember that they were a person and their family still is around and expects them to be treated a certain way. Um, but in terms and and I think we were also briefed that you know. If you're feeling like it's all too hard, just go outside. That's fine. Don't don't stress out about it. But I don't remember being really kind of like sat down and warned mm. to brace myself. I remember a video that was shown where they had people who were going to donate their body and they discussed why they were donating their body. Right. And the, the pathway that took them to wanting to have that, um, have their body used as teaching material. And I think that really shows you the thought process that they were going through before death and how important it was for you to fully use that body to the best of your ability to learn and to be able to really understand what's what's going on with it and use that in your future profession yeah yeah just back for a moment on to the motivations question um what to what extent now that you're immersed in it do you have a sense of something we might loosely call the humanitarian disposition the idea that you're you're doing something for humanity that humanity clearly values and and needs is that part of it or is it and i'm sure it is for some and it maybe sits on a sliding scale um and perhaps in compare contrast to the idea that you're doing it because of this love of physical science I think, um, it, yeah, I think you're right. It's probably on a bit of a spectrum for everybody. Um, I sort of have the opinion a little bit that, yes, medical professionals, doctors are a necessary part of society, but if I wasn't doing it, somebody else would be. So I don't feel like this is, you know, this great cause that I'm contributing to. You know, someone else would pick up the slack if I wasn't there. So I guess in, in a lot of ways it's a selfish pursuit, really. Um, I'm doing it because I reckon I'd have a good time and I'd do a good job mm. of it and enjoy my life. Aristotle said that um, where the needs of the world meet your talents, that's what you should do. Mm. And Zach, would that apply to you in that sense? I don't know if I've got the talents yet, but I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> well, one of the fantastic things about medical school is that it's, it, I mean, it's a fantastic you know, kind of test in and of itself. And, you know, you've kind of made it through, making it through. Yep. Um, you, know, you do have what it takes. Um Unfortunately, however, and I'm looking for you guys' input on this, you know, it can be quite brutal, especially as a junior doctor. And that's actually got, I think, far more to do with the failings of the system than right. the student. Um, there's these you know, kind of vestigial kind of inheritance of all these structures that oppress the lives of junior doctors and interns in a way that's actually completely unneeded. Mm-hmm. That does not actually make you a better doctor or improve healthcare for patients in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it really reminds me, yeah, God, if, if, if medical students aren't kind of making it through or really struggling, yeah, maybe they're not the problem because they are some of the, you know, the best and brightest we've got. Yeah. What is the dropout rate? You guys um, lost some colleagues in battle? Yeah, yeah, I definitely have. Um, and I don't know any specific numbers, but... It is definitely something that's uh, at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Uh, a lot of people struggle with medical school, fair enough. And they, there's more dropouts than you'd, you'd hope for. Yeah, right. 
Is there a common denominator? Is it... Mm. Mm, that's quite a hard question. I'm not sure on training wheels. Not as far as I know. I actually, I believe... My understanding is the dropout rate's actually quite low. Mm. And I think part of that is probably the application process is becoming more and more difficult. Um, so if you make it through the application process, you're probably pretty committed. Mm. All right. Exactly right, yeah. Hey, um, we'll probably uh, we'll just take a, a short music break and then come back and let's start talking about the programs themselves, the decisions you make as you move through. Um, essentially, the system that Dr Sharma was just, uh, just pointing out. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Therapy on Triple R Sunday morning. It's myself, panel beater, and Dr. Sharma, joined by Training Wheels and uh, radiotherapists, newest team member Neo Nadal, and we're talking all things med ed in Australia. Hey, I'm really keen to hear from you about um, the process to get yourself into "quote unquote" the system. What's involved with um, application? So, oh. This is testing my memory. I can't remember how you... Okay, so you've got to do this entry exam called the GAMSAT, which until recently I called the hardest thing I've ever done, but I've since had a baby, so that (laughs) takes the cake. Uh, (laughs) uh, But it's awful. The GAMSAT is horrendous. It's an eight-hour exam. It takes all all longer. It takes all day... you, yeah, it's just horrendous. What's the prep for that? Like, you did a, an undergraduate degree beforehand. Yeah. Was that useful to you to do that test? No. Or no oh, the arts degree was because there's an essay writing component uh-huh. and there's a humanities component, which is sort of about, you know, analysing poetry yeah, and stuff. Reading comprehension. Yeah. The theory about all these tests, for example, so I, I did an undergraduate degree and it's much longer before you guys, and the test there is the UMAT, the Undergraduate Medical mm. Admission Test. The theory is supposed to be that these tests you can't really train for, um, that they are measuring some form of, I get, raw talent and aptitude, which will, uh, in theory, be a good predictor of how you'll kind of go to medical school and, and studies later on. Now, I mean, the evidence base for these things is shaky enough anyway, but I think perhaps even more problematic is the idea that you can't train for these because... There's lots of training courses out there, and you mm. actually can mm. train for them. Mm-hmm. Right. The training courses are expensive. Mm-hmm. They tend to favour students who have access to these things Absolutely. monetarily and otherwise. Yeah, it's a it's it's, it's incredibly competitive. As I'm sure it was for you guys back. With this is the a huge as well. bugbear I have with medical training in general. Is it it selects for more privileged people mm. every step of the way. If you want to get into an, a post grad course, it means you have to be in a financial situation to ride out doing an undergrad first, where you can't you know you can't work full time. I mean, you can, but it's very, very hard. You will need financial support from somewhere usually to be able to do an undergrad first and then you do your postgrad. Again, very hard to support yourself financially during that. The GAMSAT itself costs $400 just Mm. to sit. Then there's all the training courses, which some of them cost thousands thousands of dollars. Mm. Um, And I think it's a real problem that the medical profession already is very elite and it just self-selects for continuing that exclusion of a more diverse cohort. Mm. We're already alluding to a few different entry points, though, right? Mm. So you guys were undergrad and then went to med grad school, right? Yep. 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 Um, Dr. Sharma, what was your I was pathway? undergraduate, so right from year 12. So I applied in you know, half, the start of year 12 to, to get into undergraduate medical uh, training and applied everywhere and mm. yeah, and did the, this, uh, this medical admission test, the UMAT, with, mm. with its reading comprehension and visuospatial, all these little kind of things that are supposedly going to predict how effective you'll be as a doctor. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm um, old enough to remember when there were very, very few med schools in Australia. Um, Certainly, obviously, the the oldest um, always had med schools. 
University of Melbourne and then Monash with its arrival in the 60s uh, got a med school and that in itself was a big deal. Now there are about 14 or 15, I, I think. I think there's 21. 21? Mm, wow. wow. Yeah, the right. newest one only opened last year, didn't Yeah, Macquarie. Macquarie. So not all of our um, universities have it. What was involved for your um, selection of Melbourne? Was it purely geographic or were there other factors involved in choosing the medical school that was good for you? Yeah, geographically, it certainly helped. Um, I think being able to live with your parents whilst you're doing medical school is certainly a big... Uh, big bonus because it is quite intensive and having that support certainly helped me mm. um, but I applied interstate I w- was going I was a, of the mindset that I'd go anywhere that they would take me mm-hmm. yeah like this is the usual story a lot of medical students will apply absolutely everywhere just mm. like I did just like neonatal um, and you'll you'll go wherever it takes and financially it must be very difficult especially as a postgrad student the course is so jam-packed how do you kind of earn enough on the side to even sustain mm. yourself it's it's mm. wild stuff very hard what does distinguish the programs though I mean, all, I'm sure each university would say that theirs is definitely the best and definitely mm. different. So so the distinguishes only around questions of perceived um, and, and or real quality rather than actual features of the programs themselves? At the end of the day, everyone's qualified as a doctor yep. and anyone can be employed as a doctor. And I think the learning curve once you become a junior doctor is so steep that probably all the differences are ironed out pretty quickly mm. anyway. But, of of course, there are differences. Yeah, the programs are slightly different. Can you unpack a program for us? So you're in third year. What's happened so far and what's ahead? So our first year was a preclinical year, which was uh, probably 300 lectures for the entire year with uh, case studies thrown into it. So every Monday we'd be introduced to a case and then we'd work through it throughout the week and then on the Friday we'd sum up the case. And they also had... uh, clinical exam training so a lot of it was being taught how to do the basics exams that you'll be using for the rest of your career just to be clear so these are like kind of physical examinations of physical exam sorry heart, yes or the lung system or the neurological yep. system yeah the bread and butter of what you be, should be doing as a doctor and then you move into your your clinical years so second year is your first clinical year and you do a medicine rotation an emergency rotation and a surgical rotation um and a sort of introductory type term. And the way Melbourne Uni is structured is you have a combination of lectures and clinical time kind of all mushed together. Uh, So I think one shortcoming of the postgrad is trying to fit a whole medical degree into four years means there's a lot of... you're just limited with time so they try to give you lectures and have you exposed to clinical situations at the same time and it's hard to do both properly um so that's second year and then third year is sort of the specialty rotations yeah so we do a rotation on women's health so that's gynecology and obstetrics uh, pediatrics gp mental health and aged care uh-huh. and that kind of sums up our clinical uh, exposure during medical school and then we do a research component for six months, which gives the course its MD qualification rather than an MBBS, which is the same course but without the research. Mm-hmm. And then we do a transition to practice, which is basically a crash course in how to be an intern and all the things that you should have been, should have uh, should know for your job. I think most of it is of the- like an apprenticeship mm-hmm. kind of. I gather most of that is just how to increase your caffeine consumption so you can work <laughs> yeah, for 37 exactly. hours straight. Is that right? And uh, and how to do paperwork. <laughs> how to do paperwork. How do you remember those times, Dr. Sharma? 
bitterly. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I, I think... Well, look, I have to be honest. Internship was probably the most rewarding year of my life um, because uh, you go from being a student, just being kind of prepped all your life to, you know, to, to kind of do this thing and you're actually kind of doing it. Um, but also, you mentioned paperwork. Uh, mm. That was... Uh, the the least enjoyable part of my my internship you you really felt like so much of your your quote unquote work was just bureaucratic and cutting through red tape in a way that it actually took away from a lot of the kind of patient interaction uh, and true learning that actually needs to happen and it, it's funny how you people every guys are saying how even even the transition to to internships you know learning how to do the paperwork mm-hmm. and uh, yeah some things don't change hey Something that Melbourne Uni does that I just wanted to mention quickly that they really promote as a something that sets them apart from other um, medical courses is we have a student-run conference every year that goes for a ah, week. You've reported on that on the show, haven't you? I have, you? yeah. And I'm a big fan of it. Some people hate it. Some people think it's a waste of time. I think it's really great. It's an opportunity for students to identify gaps in the curriculum and um, invite speakers from all over the world to teach medical students. Dr Sharma has appeared a number of times at our conference um, and it's often um, things like the social determinants of health Mm. become explored in greater detail, uh, career opportunities, other stuff that we've identified that's missing from the curriculum that we really would like to know. Mm. And I think that's a good, it's, it's a cool week. Mm. What are the, um, so at third year, what are the big decisions coming up in ter- that you have to make in terms of what starts to um, either narrow or increase options for you going forward? Arguably the research project. So yep. we do that at the the first six months of fourth year we spend doing this research project and arguably which field you choose to undertake this research project in would, you know, perhaps limit or widen your career options down the track. I don't know how true that is because I think mostly you're probably just learning research skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't think I think it's unfair to expect us to make a call of what career we want already. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's the first time where we're really given some choice to mm, look yeah. at what we're interested in. I think a lot of medicine is also about who you know as well and doing a research project in a field that you're interested in and hopefully will be your future career gets you an opportunity to start knowing the key players in that field and and getting an idea of what it's actually like to be in that field. Bit of a mm. foot in the door. Mm. Yeah, right. Let's just take a uh, quick moment to um, hear from a couple of sponsors and uh, we'll come back and maybe we can talk about careers. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Radio Therapy and Triple R. It's myself, Panel Beater, with Dr. Sharma in the studio with Training Wheels and Neonatal. Uh, to take us through the last few minutes of the show, uh, tell us all about career options now. How does being at third year relate to understanding what the future looks like for you guys, Neonatal? Yeah, we uh, have to start thinking about uh, which hospitals we'd like to work at and where we'd like to apply. So our first year out is our internship. And unlike other states, we have to actually choose hospitals that we'll apply to and uh, hopefully we get a job with one of them. Um, We are guaranteed a job uh, somewhere in the state. It's just a question of where. just a question of where. And a lot of people do say that you should always choose a hospital which will give you a better into whatever specialty that you like. So some hospitals do women's health quite well, some do paediatrics, some do psychiatry or surgery. And if you're interested in one of those fields, you should start aiming your um, where you apply to those hospitals. Yeah, so that's the major question, I guess. Um, my 
classmates that are in their final year have just been offered their jobs a week or so ago. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the first part of the year, of fourth year is spent doing this research project and panicking about <laughs> where you're going to get a job. Do you feel um, pressured into making decisions about specialty? I mean, you're... Oh, no, you're gone. Yes and no. Uh, there's definitely an underlying sense of like, oh, if I don't make the most of every opportunity now, then I might lose mm. my opportunity to meet people in this specialty and then I'll never get into the training program and da da da. You know, some of the training programs are very competitive. So you do need to be strategic about your decisions. But I don't know. I think I'm different from the average medical student. I sort of think, okay, I'll work it out. How much of your decision making is influenced by your understanding of the health system itself? Like, there must be aspects of the Australian health system that are very attractive for various reasons, mm. and there must be aspects of the health system that are less attractive. So, two prong question How much uh, time is spent in your training and education about the health system itself? And second of all, is it true that there are more attractive sectors of the health in regards to the first question i think almost no time is spent uh about the health system itself we get a little bit at the conference because that was recognized as a gap in our training but i think they expect a lot of it to be kind of done by osmosis you know just picked up you know in the hospitals and on our placements what about um in in light of that um what i what's otherwise known as the sociology of health you know so how is how is disease understood? How is how are these um, social epidemics of things like um, addiction and obesity understood from a sociological point of view? Communicated in your training, there's certainly an attempt to include those sorts of aspects of health at, throughout every level of our you know the core curriculum. But ultimately, when there's so much science and kind of core medicine we need to learn, yeah. it's limited how much we can fit that in, which I think is a real shame. Mm. But the conference picks up the slack a lot of the time. Yeah, right. I think this is part of the challenge of medical school. Just the physics of time means that you've <laughs> got to kind of pick and choose what you're going to. Uh, we'll be able to teach students, but uh, kind of coming back to the early point about how the healthcare system works, uh, generally speaking, uh, no education at all. Wow. Um, what is Medicare? Where does the money come <laughs> from how does that dictate how individual patients access healthcare and also what services the system can provide there's just kind of none of that so on that front i, I think uh, Mel- melbourne university does a fantastic job of trying to kind of fill those holes or at least kind of point them out mm. um but you know medical education is this kind of constantly evolving beast as we realize all its limitations yeah. i think that melbourne uni has definitely recognized a couple of those gaps such as lgbtqi health and they try and fill in the gaps but it's such a evolving field and such a a new recognition that how these social determinants interplay into health that i think that we're almost falling behind a little bit yeah i mean we we could probably just between the four of us come up with a whole lot of things that we might wish were in the in the career i mean indigenous health for example Mm, um does that get a look in it's getting more of a look in than it used to um and we've we've had lectures because they've been quite upfront saying we missed we missed this out in your first few years we we dropped the ball on that one and they're trying to catch us up mm. but it's a very difficult thing to uh teach just by yeah. throwing a bunch of lectures at you mm. sure um we're coming into the last couple of minutes so if you so you're in an interview now training wheels where do you see yourself in 10 years time uh okay so i don't know what specialty yet i can't make that call but i think the thing for me and having a baby has definitely Uh changed my priorities and perspective on things is working it 
not buying into the idea that you have to work full-time to be successful or more than full-time to be successful. There aren't enough part-time positions. There aren't enough opportunities for job sharing outside of the general practice, um, I guess, institution uh, in, in the hospital system. I think I, I'd love to forge a path that's a bit different. And Neonato? Uh I love paediatrics, so hopefully um, yeah. as a paediatrician in 10 years, but yeah, fingers crossed. Hey, that brings us to the end of a show that's just flown by. It's been great talking with you, Training Wheels and Neonatal, about MedEd. I reckon we should return to this uh, subject uh, later in the year if we can. Um, so big thanks to you. Big thanks to uh, Dr Sharma. Um, Neonatal also happens to be a Radiotherapy's podcast editor, so we'll have that going up, wearing a couple of hats. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.